Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I wanted to have a stage name as well. But I do have a pseudonym that I came up with drunk at university, but it basically makes me sound like a 70s porn star. Well, hello. Just checking the game, Amy. Yep, game's fine. I went to the Chelsea Flowers show. I go every year. I get free tickets because I'm famous. There, I've said it. It's not my fault. Sue me. And it means I get a free birthday present for my mum because it's around her birthday. Anyway, I digress. We love gardens and actually meet so many nice people. And I met Andy Bell from the Centre for Mental Health. They were doing a garden and they do really, really interesting things. And so I said, would you come on the podcast? Luckily, they said yes. So here's my chat, just giving a summary of what they do. And it's very interesting. My name's Andy. I work at Centre for Mental Health. We're an independent charity and our work is dedicated to ending inequalities in mental health. So um, I'm a member of a team of uh, 27 of us and uh, we all work together to uh, do the research, produce the evidence and change policies so that everyone has a better chance of good mental health. Now we met at the Chelsea Flower Show and we had such a nice chat and I just thought it was so interesting the little I heard about what you guys were doing just then you know we don't talk for a short amount of time how long has your organization been going so the work started in 1985 I haven't been around quite all of that time uh, so in a number of different ways over time we've always been uh, around to identify what is it that creates inequalities in mental health why is it some groups of people have a poorer experience in their lives uh, and also what can we do to make sure that people get the right support for their mental health so no matter who you are and where you kind of appear in the system who you get support from that it's the best possible quality and uh, everyone has a good chance to recover and um, have a good life. So I would imagine that looking at inequality in mental health that one could split it well immediately I think of splitting it into two so why someone might experience worse mental health and the links to advantages or disadvantages people might have and then I guess the inequality within the health system itself would I be right is there a sort of another way of splitting it as well yeah I mean there, there are many ways of splitting it and it comes across many different dimensions but fundamentally what we're doing is first of all identifying how we can ensure that everyone, no matter who they are, where they're born, what family they live in, what kind of background they have, has a better chance of good mental health in their lives. And we close some of those gaps. So, so we know those gaps are very substantial and very stark and have no good reason. So we're wanting both to, if you like, prevent mental health problems in the first place wherever we can, give everyone a good chance of having good mental health, 
but we also know that when people live with mental illness in particular, particularly long-term mental health problems, that they don't have as good chances in many other aspects of life too, whether that's in the jobs market, in housing, and indeed in physical health. So again, we're doing a lot of work about how people living with a mental illness can have a fair opportunity. And of course, those things collide. So we know that some groups of people have a poorer experience of mental health services because of characteristics such as um, race, for example. So again, there are ways in which all these different inequalities merge, but fundamentally they're in the two pieces that you describe, yeah. Gosh, you must be constantly looking into new things because, I mean, that in itself, just thinking about if you have a long-term mental health condition, how that might affect you in the workplace and the inequalities within the workplace. I mean, that's a lifetime thing of research just there, isn't it? <laughs> we could do just one of those and be quite happy doing that. And I think um, these are all huge topics. Uh, you know, in a sense, there are lots of mental health charities out there. We all do different things and we all sometimes do similar things, but from a different angle. So, so we're not the only people working on inequalities in mental health. It would be supremely arrogant to think we were. But we try to bring together the evidence that's produced by other people as well as just doing our own research. So, again, one of the important jobs is seeing what evidence is out there and bringing it together and putting that in front of policy makers and people that make decisions about how health services are run or what happens in government or whatever so that they have the best possible advice to make the best possible decisions. So there is a lot of it. It is a broad territory. But of course, the things overlap. What we learn about housing has some similarities to what we learn about employment or what happens in schools. So sometimes there's a benefit in having these different bits of knowledge that you can kind of um, bring to different places. Yes, you probably start seeing, even in this podcast that I do, I start seeing sort of areas where things emerge and normally it tends to be areas where things are lacking quite often it comes down to funding in some sort of way which I'm sure you guys come up with I'd be really interested to know what you've been looking at at the moment and then perhaps examples of what you've looked into and then how you can use that information to initiate you know change yeah, just some examples of the things we do then. Uh, we've looked at what can happen within schools, for example, to help to promote good mental health for everyone. Uh, we know that probably after home, school is the second biggest impact on a child's mental health. It has as big an influence as, as anything apart from child's home life. And schools are public services, so there's um, ways in which we can create good policies and practices, hopefully, to support children to have a good and positive experience of school because we know that if your mental health is looked after you're more likely to get good grades so you're more likely to do well in education as well as having a better childhood so one of the things that really interests us is how schools can be a good kind of mental health promoting environment and one of the things that has come through from that from talking to children and young people from looking at research we've done some work with some partners around um, how you support good behavior in schools and what ways you can do that to help children who behave badly which is often a sign of unmet needs what we can do to help children with behavioral problems to get on better in school all of these things point towards something which is a bit jargony called a whole school approach to mental health but it simply means that the way the school is run the policies it has the ways teachers are supported points towards good mental health and you do that deliberately rather than just by kind of um, crossing your fingers and hoping and so we've been supporting the evidence creation and generation around that and then sharing it with schools and indeed 
people in government so that we can help schools to be a better place uh, for kids to be. Just to pick up on that point, I think it's really interesting. And actually, I was talking to someone, a friend the other day whose child has had to leave one school because of difficulties with this child's mental health and go to another school. And the school has been absolutely amazing at dealing with this child, actually. I mean, it's quite remarkable. But, but one of the things that I've noticed in my very small experience is that one would think you'd end up with a blanket approach from school to school. But that doesn't seem to be the case, which sort of leads me on to my next question is when you go to these schools, are you getting the permission through councils or are you getting permission on a national level? And is that why there is such variation? I mean, I suppose there's partly variation because of academisation, because a lot of schools are academies now. In fact, most are academies as long as they kind of meet the national curriculum and do well in Ofsted inspections, they have a great deal of freedom about what they do and don't do. And over time, Ofsted has at times had mental health as one of the things it inspects schools on. Then for a long time, over the last decade, it hasn't. It's just beginning to make mental health more of a topic again now. Oh, really? Why did it drop off, do you think, for 10 years? I think it was probably at a point when government felt it wanted to focus on the three R's, the basics of education. So reading, writing and arithmetic and uh, a belief that perhaps previously it had strayed to other topics that weren't the core business of schools. That's obviously a decision that we weren't keen on at the time. And um, we're glad that government and Ofsted are moving towards a rounder understanding now. But again, it's created a culture where it's very much up to individual schools. So it then depends on uh, the head teachers, the governors, the school leaders more broadly, what their interests are, what their priorities are. I don't know of any school now that doesn't care about children's mental health. We're long past that. Mm. But knowing what to do and having the skills and knowledge is another question. So very often our work is about sharing the evidence where we can, trying to create the right policy environment so that, for example, schools have permission and are encouraged to support well-being. But ultimately, this comes down to the power structures and how things are decided. Uh, for us as a charity, we want to influence that, but we can't make people do things. Yes. So you, you mentioned that and then you were going to go on to another example. Yeah. So something else we spent a lot of time doing is um, looking at how people with a mental illness, long term mental illness, can be supported into employment. We know that unemployment is incredibly toxic to your mental health. It's one of the biggest risk factors. And a lot of people who are living with a mental illness are not in employment. That may be because they had difficulties, for example, when they were at school, if they became unwell, when they were finishing their education, or indeed people may have lost their jobs when they've experienced mental illness. And the labour market hasn't always been the most friendly place for people with a mental health condition. So looking at the evidence, there is a very effective way of supporting people into employment who have a mental health condition. It goes by the name individual placement and support. And it's really a method where an employment specialist will work with someone to work out what is it they want to do, what kind of things they're good at, where they'd like to work, and then they go out and find them a job rather than just waiting for something to appear. And um, then when someone starts work, they and their employer get support for as long as they need it. 
so that the employer doesn't feel it's a risk taking on someone who has a potentially more difficult history than average. So we've spent the last few years working with the NHS to get more of these services available across the country. We provide training for employment specialists and we've also helped to uh, share the evidence with policymakers. So NHS England, as part of its current plans for mental health, is expanding availability of this approach to supporting people. So we're gradually, bit by bit, piece by piece, changing the idea that people with a mental illness don't have a right to work and don't have a right to proper support. And it's really important that this is very much a rights-based thing. It's not making people work, but it's also not excluding people from work. And when you hear about people's stories and the difference it's made in their lives, being able to try out work and earn some money and do something they're good at, you realise how important this is. So that's another area that has really interested us. And and we're beginning to see social change, but it's piece by piece. I mean, that's amazing. And, you know, I've I've had times when I haven't been able to work because of my mental health. And I, I know, you know, a lot of people that because of their mental health, they're not able to work or they find it difficult because let's say they have high anxiety or they're hypervigilant. So they need to find a way of working you know, but that doesn't mean they should be excluded from a job market. It's just finding a way that it can work for them. Exactly right. And it's all about doing what's right for the individual. And one of the things that's so often the case is that if you do the right things for the individual in a way that works for them, it's also better for systems too. So um, if people do get work that suits them, that they like, that they get something out of, overall their health begins to improve over time and that of course means the NHS actually ends up spending less money in the long term so it's mutually beneficial and often things go wrong when systems work against people so for example the worst thing you could do if someone is out of work and living with a mental illness is um, take people's benefits away if they don't do certain things with the kind of sanctions regime that some people Mm. still experience or um writing people off because someone thinks, well, they'll probably never work. And that's such a terrible thing to do to someone. So it's going at a Mm. pace that's right for the person, doing it in a way where they feel in charge rather than done to and made to do things. And um, that makes a real difference. And I heard you mention earlier people's varying backgrounds and you mentioned race. And I wondered if you've done any interesting work on that. You know, I've heard various studies and things over the years uh, I'd be really interested to hear what maybe if you've done some work in that area yeah I mean it's it's an area where the statistics are frankly terrible and the experiences that lie behind those statistics are even worse so we know if you're black British or black Caribbean living in the UK you're four times more likely to be sectioned under the mental health act And if you are in hospital under the Mental Health Act, you're more likely to be in more secure, more coercive environments. The police are more likely to be involved in your coming into the system. You're less often offered talking therapies, but more often put under restraint and and other kind of closed conditions. And when you leave hospital, you're more likely, 10 or 11 times more likely, for goodness sake, to be given a community treatment order, which continues to restrict your movements when you leave hospital. And unsurprisingly, your outcomes are worse as well. And there are disparities like this across the system, and they're worse for some groups than others. But nonetheless, overall, this is pretty terrible. So um, we've done a number of things in recent years. We focus particularly on the experiences of young people 
we worked alongside some organisations in Birmingham on a project to identify early intervention approaches. So working with community organisations to support alternatives to statutory services that people just don't trust and ways in which you can promote wellbeing by tackling racism. We've also uh, currently working alongside UK Youth and the Diana Award on a programme called Young Changemakers, where young black people are taking the lead in running social action campaigns. So one group, for example, Not So Micro, is uh, campaigning for all, all teachers and school professionals to be trained in understanding how important microaggressions are and how to handle those, because they've experienced those in schools, they know how much harm they do, so they're wanting to change that. So our role is very much about supporting the young people to be in the lead and to, to, to make those changes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Now that's interesting. I think it would be interesting for the listeners to hear a definition of what microaggressions are and how they might play out. Yeah, and obviously the word micro is, is the least useful part of that. What it is, is incidents of, of racism within the classroom. They may be intentional, they may not, that really doesn't matter. But where someone is treated differently or less well because of their racial background. Uh, sometimes it may be incidents of bullying from other children. Sometimes it may be being treated less well by a staff member, maybe some of the kind of racist tropes that affect black children. So with girls, for example, experiencing adultification or um, being discriminated against upon the basis of their hairstyles, for example. Boys being perhaps treated more punitively than white boys. And what the evidence tells us and the young people tell us is often it's the accumulation of these negative experiences that lead to some of the higher rates we see of poor mental health among black people living in Britain, which you don't see in black majority countries. You see it in Britain, you see it in the US, you see it in other parts of Western Europe, but you don't see it in the Caribbean or, or Africa, for example. So there is nothing inherent or inevitable about the higher rates of poor mental health among people in black communities. It's something about the harm that is done through the kind of cumulative effects of racism. Even very small things can add up over time. So what Not So Micro are trying to do with the support from us and other organisations is to help teachers to feel more empowered and able to prevent these incidences and deal with them when they happen on the understanding that that should improve black children's experiences in schools and therefore have a longer term effect on their mental health. And I would imagine another key area is poverty within mental health and, and how that affects people in all areas of their life. I mean, that's such a huge topic 
isn't it, to research. But I wondered if you had any sort of, you might have focused in on some particular areas. Poverty is probably the single biggest driver of mental health inequality. I think all the evidence points to that. And sometimes it intersects with other things like racism. But overall, poorer children are four times by the time they leave primary school more likely to have experienced a significant mental health problem than the wealthiest children. I mean, that's mm. extraordinary for it to be four times as common. Quite terrifying. It's extraordinary. I mean, it means a child born in poverty today, not only do they experience the negative effects of that, but we know that mental health problems in childhood have an effect throughout your life. It casts a shadow across your opportunities as an adult. So these formative effects in your early years can, can have a very big impact and they affect everything about your life. So the more we can do to prevent that, the better. And it does seem that poverty is a risk factor in itself partly the struggle to survive, partly knowing that other people have got things that your family haven't got and knowing that, you know, if, if your, your family is struggling to survive day by day, that can, again, have a wearing down effect on a child's mental health. Children are remarkably able to know this stuff. They know what's going on. They see parents often desperately try to protect their children from the effects of poverty, but it wears away and it has an impact. And, and um, one of the most extraordinary things is there's very good evidence that more unequal societies have higher rates of mental illness as a whole. So efforts to, if you like, reduce the gap between the richest and the poorest can have a beneficial effect on mental health as a whole. And indeed, um, where we've seen places that have had minimum income guarantees or where real living wages have been used, you see quite significant improvements in mental health. So one of the things we do a lot is work with local councils and we encourage them to become living wage employers, to make sure they're providing welfare advice to people who having mental health difficulties may be coming into their GP or seeing mental health services. Anything we can do to help to boost people's incomes at the lower end of the scale, the more we can do to promote mental health for everyone. If that was driving government policies, Imagine what we could do for the nation's mental health if, if uh, for example, we had a real drive to, to end child poverty. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you that question and, and you don't have to answer it because I know you have, you know, you have to work with all policymakers. But it did make me think, I, you know, I wonder if there's been a study on, and this is such a broad way of putting it, but whether a more socialist government, let's say, ends up being better for mental health than a conservative government. I wonder if there have been studies on that. I've certainly not seen any if there are. No. And of course, there'd be so many confounding factors. So so, so um, yeah. one of the things that we can say with certainty is that if you seek to reduce child poverty and you put, I mean, one of the things we've said to governments of every political stripe is make mental health something you test government policies for before you do them. If government decided and they could decide it tomorrow to just have a test that said, what will the impact of this policy be on people's mental health? You could have better policy making. They have done it in New Zealand. They have well-being budgeting. It's entirely possible really? to do for any government of any political persuasion. So I think that there are real benefits in taking that kind of, we call it a mental health in all policies approach. It's very simple and straightforward. And it could make a massive difference. It really doesn't cost much. If you think mental health is important and people's mental health is important, then you can make those decisions at a national level. You can do it in local government too. You could do it in any place where decisions are being made about how we're governed and how public money is spent. 
if you did that for the benefit of people's mental health, then it would have massive repercussions and could really make a big difference. And what do they do in New Zealand? You said they have a mental, they have a well-being budget. Yeah, so what that means is they're spending public money on the basis of what would have the greatest benefits for people's mental health and well-being. So sometimes that may be spending money specifically on mental health services, for example, or things that can prevent mental illness. Other times it may be a bit more upstream. So thinking about policies that would overall reduce the risk to mental health. Nowhere in the world is perfect on this. Britain has the chance to lead the world on it if it wants to. But New Zealand is probably the closest that I've seen so far to doing that on a national scale. I would like to hear perhaps what things you've got coming up that you're excited about looking into and maybe what you think, you know, things like having a sort of mental health as a sort of litmus test, maybe is the wrong phrase, but for any sort of policy that governments of any stripe, you know, would be using that test. Perhaps I wonder if there are other things that you would love to see that you think could make a huge difference. Because you're so on the ground seeing all these things and discovering all this information, garnering all this knowledge. Yeah, thank you. Litmus test is a great phrase, by the way. I'm going to borrow it if that's all right. Oh, good. Okay, thank you. Good. Um, Good. We're just about to um, finish a piece of work looking at uh, a really positive government scheme called the Better Mental Health Fund. And and this was done in the middle of the period of COVID lockdowns. Government put some money out to local councils in 40 of the most deprived areas of England to spend on supporting mental health at a time when mental health was put under real strain for all of us. We know that. And particularly for the poorest. And it was called the Better Mental Health Fund. And councils, by and large, spent the money by supporting community organisations to... um, take on projects that would help people's mental health, everything from kind of young people's groups to bereavement support to peer support projects, all sorts of things that um, were locally defined according to what was needed. Uh, We did the national evaluation of that and we found that it was a brilliant way of spending money to support people's mental health and well-being. So, So we've managed to pull that together. We're going to be sharing the report shortly. And it just shows what you can do with resource put into local areas and local communities to support people's mental health and well-being. You know, if you trust communities to get on with it, if you trust local public health teams, uh, the public health grant has been cut and cut and cut over recent years, way more than health services the NHS has been. And uh, their power to spend money has been decimated, but we've shown that they can make a huge difference. And it was a really positive scheme led by central government. So we're really pleased to be sharing that. The other thing that's ongoing and we're still working on is is something called Equally Well. And this is something which is supporting physical health for people living with a mental illness. So so we know that uh, if you have a long-term mental health problem, you have a vastly reduced life expectancy, largely due to poorer physical health. So Equally Well is our initiative alongside partners in Rethink Mental Illness and various other organisations to help health services and others to provide the right support for people's physical health. So if people want to give up smoking, to help people give up smoking. If people are having medications that cause rapid weight gain, to help them to manage a healthy weight, to make sure people have access to cancer screening, immunisations and all the things that we know keep people well. And so Equally Well is a really important part of what we're doing. And we're just finishing a piece of work with um, colleagues in Teesside about food insecurity 
among people living with a mental illness because we know vast majority of people live on very very low incomes so it's no good lecturing people with a mental illness about a healthy diet and living well and and having all the healthy foods if people can barely afford to uh, feed themselves or their families so we've just done a piece of research about that that we'll be sharing soon so again this is really important stuff to help to uh, really start to make a difference to uh, the most stark inequality in health of all must be how long you can expect to live for and if you're having two decades taken off of your life we need to take that seriously and start to make some progress and i'm just wondering if if people can sort of get in touch to help you or support you fund you any of those things yeah i mean that would be amazing if you want to get in touch obviously if you want to donate to work of center for mental health all donations every penny will be spent tackling mental health inequalities and doing what we do to make a difference so the website is uh, www.centerformentalhealth.org.uk and we're on all good social platforms at center for mh and everything we do as an organization we do in partnership with others we do the research we do the policy making or the policy ideas that we give to policy makers but we get the richness of ideas from talking with people who know this either from lived experience or because of the knowledge they gain from their day-to-day work we gain hugely from understanding all those perspectives we're a small organization but we work really hard to build all those connections we've just been working alongside a wonderful organization called kidney research uk to understand the mental health needs of people living with chronic kidney disease so all these partnerships that we have with various different organizations and people who have something to share they're so important so much of what we learn comes not from formal research but just by listening to people and organizations Mm. who understand this firsthand and and that's where we get the richness of knowledge and understanding we're really interested in the experiences of trans and non-binary people at the moment for example who we know have much poorer mental health outcomes and don't get the right support. We know about the importance of services working properly with autistic people and people with learning disabilities. Again, they don't get the right support at the moment. It's not sufficiently adapted. We've still got loads more to learn and loads more to find out. And that everything that we do that adds value comes from speaking with people who who, um, can bring that knowledge to what we do. Actually, lastly, I'd love to ask you just about Chelsea, how that came about, the garden and and maybe the reaction to it. Yeah, so it's a bit random, isn't it? A charity focused on mental health inequalities finding itself at the Chelsea Flower Show. It's not what I expected to happen, but there we were anyway. And we were very fortunate that the two designers from Wild City Studio, who are fantastic, they wanted to do something a bit different. They wanted to produce an urban garden that was all about creating a mentally healthy space for an urban community. We know people in urban communities, particularly the poorest, don't have access to green spaces so much. And yet we hear endlessly about how gardens are good for your mental health and green spaces and in contact with nature. We know about the climate crisis and the effect it's having on our mental as well as our physical health. So again, we need climate resilient spaces. So they they found us and they said, would you be our charity partner? There's a wonderful philanthropic organisation called Project Giving that funded the garden that meant that we as a charity didn't have to um, pay for the garden itself that was covered and we were able to take our message to people at the Chelsea Flower Show who probably weren't expecting to hear from us telling them about um, urban communities and mental health but we were proud and delighted to have that opportunity. Well I think it was brilliant and it's lovely to see you guys there and it's been lovely to talk to you and uh, it's so nice to hear a snippet 
of the stuff that you do. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been an absolute uh, privilege. Thank you. There you go. Uh, you know how to get in touch with them. I think they do really great things. And uh, knowledge is power, as they say. I don't know who said that. It was either Cilla Black or Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Answers on a postcard. <laughs> no, but do let us know. And actually, maybe you could get in touch with them. You might want them to cover an area, you know, that they haven't sort of looked into, but they're pretty cool. But let us know what you think of the chat. You've been in touch. And as ever, I thank you for it. Hi, Will. I've been really enjoying listening to the podcast this season. I've suffered from clinical depression all my life. I suspect I have intergenerational trauma from all the reading I've done. It's also interesting. I've had some somatic work, but not enough. It's been healing to learn why I'm the way I am. And there's a reason for it all. Like you began the conversation talking about nervous system regulation. I too am learning to listen to my body and show it more compassion for its protection. I think healing is a journey and not a destination. I agree. And you've also mentioned a few things that we've spoken about on the podcast. Intergenerational trauma and somatic healing. And if you haven't heard those, have a listen because they're really good. Thank you for getting in touch. Hey there, I've really struggled with perfectionism and hearing you guys dive into the topic was like a breath of fresh air. Keep rocking those episodes, Amy. Oh good, I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased. Thank you for getting in touch and telling us about that. Will, i got to say the hypnotherapy episode was really interesting. I've always been curious about this stuff. Thanks for demystifying hypnotherapy for me. Now I just have to find a hypnotherapist in Merthyr Tidfil, South Wales. Hey Will, thank you for the episode on communication. That was a good one me likey that one it's crazy how miscommunication can screw things up well yeah it is but also actually quite explainable <laughs> if you think about it um i listened with my partner while we were driving up to manchester and it was like we had a private therapy session on the road thank you oh that's so sweet oh, that's so sweet don't therapize and drive hey will and amy can we please get an episode on menopause i know it might not be up your alley will oh, it doesn't matter i might not get menopause but i can completely dive into the topic and be interested and curious thank you for suggesting but i think amy would agree that all 40 plus female listeners would really appreciate it there's so much stigma around menopause no there is thank you very much for getting in touch as ever, please email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Till next week. Love you. Bye. Did you know The Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 